Welcome to Health System CIO's Partner Perspective Interview Series. I'm Anthony Guerra, founder and editor-in-chief. Today, we're talking with Ryan Witt, Managing Director of Healthcare for Proofpoint. Ryan, thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here. Very good. You want to start by telling me a little bit about your organization and your role there? Sure. Proofpoint um, is a company who is wholly focused from a cyber standpoint on protecting people, uh, and how they work and how they interact with their with their with their people, their staff, their clinicians, their systems. And, and what I mean by that is the cyber landscape has changed quite dramatically, and people now are the thrust of almost all cyber sort of attacks. And really, the social the level of social engineering that we are seeing uh, from these bad actors means that they're really focused on. How do they communicate with their peers? How do they communicate with uh, maybe in a healthcare context with patients? How do they uh, interact with maybe their third party or business associates? And so that messaging platform is a big force of a big thrust of attack. How they interact with the cloud environment, the importance of cloud apps uh, in running their overall um, systems or their networks or interacting with uh, patient care or patients. Um, it's becoming a big, big thrust of attacks. And so Proofpoint has really tried to focus on all those sort of tools and capabilities that safeguard and secure that environment to give the maximum amount of protection, where at least today is we see the real lion's share of all that bad actor or, or cyber criminal activity. Right, right. All My right. role within yeah. Proofpoint, just to emphasize that sure. part, but I have this tunnel vision focus on healthcare. So Proofpoint made a deliberate um, investment and trying to become more and more relevant to a small number of industry segments. This is about a five years ago. So it, this is a long journey for us, an important journey for us. And my role is to be kind of like the internal and the external megaphone. So mm -hmm. understand what the use cases are, understand how we can adapt our solutions and our partnerships and our capability and adjust our roadmap so that we present the most optimal sort of experience for uh, healthcare industry customers. Yeah, it's interesting you use the word use cases. And I hear that a lot when I speak to different IT executives. Um, they, they like to take, I think they like to take things from an abstract level. Uh, can you do this or can you do that? Or what should we be working on to use cases. And I guess when you do that, you make things very practical and then you make your objectives more reachable, definable. Is that, is that right? It is. And I'm, you know, that's a little bit of buzzword bingo going on here too. Maybe we should get rid of this sort of, because it is a very popular sort of jargon these days, mm -hmm. but, but yes, I mean, cyber, um, cyber, you know, if you want to look at this one angle or this one sort of perspective, can be uh, at a macro level. You think, how does it apply to my world? Particularly, you think about how do you uh, explain the importance of cyber as a proactive sort of mechanism that um, our pro proactive capability is not just some sort of like insurance style. In the unlikely event that we ever were to get attacked, this is how you mitigate against it. It's a proactive capability and proactive sort of stance. Um, that should be looked at and invested in. So if you talk about that in use cases, like how does somebody who may be in a healthcare context who is a consultant to the organization has legitimate reasons to access both 
corporate tools, corporate messaging platforms, but also third-party tools and messaging platforms. And that sort of quote unquote use case, how do you safeguard those various sort of instances of engagements? And what are the capabilities you need to think about? And what are some of the risk threat profiles of each one of those sort of interactions? So yeah, I think it takes it takes the abstract into a very um a very bite sizable to you know sort of understandable sort of way of looking at it. Right, right. So one of the biggest things that I've come across recently, no surprise, is this risk posed by third party um, entities that a health system is leveraging. Uh, we had the Kronos outage, which, uh, you know, a CIO, a CISO I spoke to said it was like a gut punch, a wake up call uh, because of just the effects, the downstream effects. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. Your impressions first of that event um, and its impact on people's thinking and preparedness and the way they're going about their business. Do you think it had a dramatic effect? Gosh, I want to say yes, but I kind of feel like healthcare in particular, as I had a lot of wake up calls from a cyber perspective over the last three, four, five years. I mean, we've had. Uh, multiple ransomware events that were wake-up calls. We have multiple phishing attacks that have been wake-up calls. We have multiple, you know, kind of large-scale PHI breaches that have been wake-up calls. Uh, We've had health systems that have gone down for the best part of a month and can't provide patient care in any sort of meaningful way. That was supposed to be a wake-up call. So I don't want to appear to be overly cynical, but I I think we have to recognize that cyber attacks are ever present in healthcare. Uh, and should you learn from this? Should we learn from this? Absolutely, we should learn from this. And I think the exposure of the supply chain or third-party risk or your, you know, your vulnerability of your business associates is a, I wouldn't say it's a new tactic, but it's certainly been a tactic that has gained a lot of momentum because of these sort of high-profile uh, events. But um so we should learn from that and we should be able to capitalize on that from a making sure that the institutions and the and, and hospital boards, those can affect cyber strategy, are aware of them. But I don't want to, I find it hard to say it's a wake-up call because that implies there's going to be some sort of seminal event or change. And I don't necessarily see that happening. And I've, <laughs> and I've heard this from you. We've talked before and I've heard this kind of, uh, sentiment from you that you you seem to feel a little bit of frustration that and we've talked about this before that there are certain things that you feel need to be in place to be running a responsible organization and it sounds like occasionally more often than you'd like you're seeing those things not being done and embraced in certain health systems is that the case I think that's the case and I you know I, I, and i appreciate how difficult it is for health systems to do their to do their job generally they are the most noble industry bar none in my view um, in business and I I have actively chosen to work in healthcare albeit from a from a vendor standpoint so I'm really appreciative of the work that they do and I don't want to be come across as overtly critical or cynical however we have to also recognize you know, that there are other capabilities that are commonplace across other industries. Let me give you just a for instance, right? I recently had a 
some sort of a credit card breach. Um, how did I know about that? Because immediately, you know, almost at in real time, somebody was trying to use my credit card to make a purchase. How did I know about that credit card company contacted me on text, like, did you authorize this purchase? Does this you, are you making? Um, so they had the level of tools in place. They had the level of analytics in place. They had the level of automation in place that can detect, um, mitigate, remediate almost in real time. And there's nothing particularly special about that because that capability exist, existed for a long time. And if probably everybody who's listening to this would probably be able to identify to a similar sort of experience, mm-hmm. healthcare doesn't have those tools yet in place. And so that, that exact capability may not be what's needed in healthcare, but the attitude is what I'm really trying to talk about in terms of the willingness and the, the recognition that we have to make the investment in this sort of resourcing and, and tools and, and, and layers of security to safeguard our, our environments. I think that's what healthcare I'd like to see embraced more and more. And it's, it's one thing when the breach or the cyber event results in brand erosion. I mean, nobody wants that. No one wants financial loss of of an industry that's working on such razor thin margins, or no one wants to see the name on the wall of shame or whatever, and the fines that ensue from all that. Those are obviously terrible events that you, you don't want to be a part of. But when it really gets to the point where you can't provide patient care because there wasn't, um, the cyber, there wasn't the enough cyber defenses in place. And people who are, you know, mid chemo treatment or mid sort of a very important life event for that patient gets denied or has to um, denied service or has to go other places for their service and the hardship it puts on them as, a, as an individual. I, I, I find that I, I do get a little bit frustrated about that. And uh, I would like to see the industry uh, be more overt and trying to uh, make amends there. And I, again, I don't want to be overly critical, but I think it's important that you know we recognize that kind of where we are, where we are, and, and there's a degree of patient heal thyself, I guess, if I want to use the phraseology. So if we can use a football term, it's 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 you want to see the basic blocking and tackling being done. Now, you know Eric Decker from Intermountain. I interviewed him recently, um, and we talked about all the resources. He's involved with creating a lot of these resources. We talked about all the resources that are out there um, that he's pointing people to and saying, "Here, it's not a mystery, right? The blocking and tackling is not a mystery. Here it is. It's laid out for you. Here's the stuff. So what you're saying is do the blocking and tackling I don't want to see the blocking and tackling missing. Then you're seeing it sometimes. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the things that's really wonderful about healthcare because that work Eric Decker's doing with Health and Human Services and the 405D team. Mm-hmm. And I think the cybersecurity prepared in this documentation, which is very comprehensive and really strong. I mean, it is, you could walk into healthcare or walk into cybersecurity not knowing a whole lot about how to build out a um, framework, security framework, 
And there's these amazing playbooks there for you. So yeah. like the work has been done to go show you how to block and, t- block and tackle if you want to continue that analogy. So yeah, I, I, I think, but, but at some stage we have to start actually executing on on the mission. So, and I, and I, of course, there is good execution on the, on the mission, but there are a number of, of surveys that come out and I, I know it's survey data, but who talk about the level of, of, of implementation of certain capabilities or level of like uh, how, what capabilities have been installed or implemented in healthcare. And it's, it's shocking when you see that, you know, things that have just basic multi-factor or um, encryption or, mm-hmm. um, you know, just, I, I don't want to go down the whole list, but like the, 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 the adoption rate is sometimes in the, you know, sub 50%. And you're just like, yeah. wait a minute. <laughs> sometimes I hear a disconnect between, uh, sometimes you hear in the security community that CISOs have all the money they'd ever need to spend and you hear them saying it sometimes occasionally saying it's not a question of money. Uh, people, if you say, make our organization a hundred percent secure, take whatever money you need, they'd say, that's still impossible. That's still not a good deal because even spending whatever I can, whatever, whatever you, I want to spend will not make us a hundred percent invulnerable. But then on the other side, sometimes I hear that they're not getting all the money they need. Do you know what's going on out there in terms of funding um, security and health systems? It's anecdotal, but it feels like to me those institutions who have the but the richness of budget you're describing have a IT team or a CISO who do a really, really good job of articulating the importance of the cybersecurity mission mm-hmm as it connect to the overall hospital mission. So they can make a direct connection to, you know, hospitals mission around patient care, patient safety, you know, words like that, um, that you need to have, you know, one of the pillars to ensure you have, you're delivering against that, you're delivering patient care, patient safety, is you need to have that robust sort of cybersecurity foundation. Because if you don't, you're extremely vulnerable to falling down on that mission. So I think those who make that connection, I think too frequently, however, there's this connection of security around compliancy. Um, I think one of the real adverse byproducts that I think the industry's had a hard time shaking off was the way, the way that meaningful use kind of relegated security into almost like a compliancy angle mm-hmm. uh, and so all that investment that was made back then was around you know checking off the boxes about really making sure that you weren't that you were compliant with the regulation but i think we all knew at the time and we all certainly know now that compliancy and security are completely different so yes you're compliant but your systems are porous so I think I think in some institutions there's been a there's been a hangover and a tough time to shake off that sort of um, that sort of um, notion. Yeah, I think they forgot interoperability and security. I think meaningfully. They that one too. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't do it all, I guess, but uh, right. yeah, those were two pretty big pretty big holes. Right. Um, 
blocking and tackling is uh, expanding in a sense. Um, this is something I'm I'm very interested in. I've spoken to CISOs about is the extended definition of business continuity planning um, as it relates to their role. When I try and do a thought experiment, oh, Einstein, but when I try and do a thought experiment of actually transitioning to paper in some sort of ransomware crisis uh, and then transitioning back again, the coordination that I envision that's required between clinical folks, IT, IT security, everybody is phenomenal. And I, I don't know if people are game planning that out to the degree it needs to be. Um, because I think we still kind of hang in our silos, you know, and I still, there's probably a, a not total comfort with some IT folks speaking to clinical leaders and saying, Hey, if this, I need to game plan out if some of these systems go down and how we would coordinate. What are your thoughts around that? That seems to me a very important thing. And I, I think it's starting to happen, but I think it's, it's slow. I think it is really important. Um, I think there's an argument that says that while that's really important and needs to happen to some degree, and, and uh, certainly with the clinical teams as best we possibly can, there's this other argument that says in parallel, you can only ask them to do so many things. And so maybe you should be asking them to have a willingness to change some of their workflows so that they can embrace some some technology, you know, in the process that um, will provide just better safeguards. So maybe you never have to get to the point where you roll out the game plan. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think it's one of those trade-offs about where do you put your investment in time? Maybe a little bit of money too, but really your investment in time, because I think that seems to be the, the big challenge of that community is, is, you know, they are obviously very focused on, on, on patient care and that tunnel vision focus on the patient. They don't really want to spend too much time on these back office um, initiatives. And I understand that, but if I, if I, I don't know, I, I might would rather spend them a better time. If I had that, if I could get X number of hours with them, I, I would almost rather say, Hey, learn how to use the security tool or learn about the importance, how to go to spot a, you know, a phishing email, or I just wondered how, how I, how would, how would I would want to spend that time if I had given the choice and a finite amount of time to work with on, on them. So there's a couple of things there. You mentioned education, which is something we talk about a lot, creating a security culture. Uh, you'll never be successful in security if you don't get your users to care about right. security. So you're kind of talking about maybe continuing to educate clinicians about the importance of security, but uh, it sounds like you're also talking about getting them to give a little bit in terms of is it workflow or you know uh, they so, don't want to take an extra second sure. are you trying to say hey guys maybe you need to take an extra second here because it's going to give us so much upside in security let me give you let me give you a real life for instance there is a capability called isolation technology mm -hmm. isolation technology essentially allows a user to interact with all the tools and messaging platforms and cloud apps that they would want to interact with, but is done so in such a way that you spin up that engagement in a container. So there is a, um, there is a, a 
safeguard in place for that clinician, for that any data that clinician is looking at, for the institution that 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 clinician is working for on that day. Um, so there is no sort of seepage in or out, seepage of data that shouldn't exfiltrate or seepage of a malware that or other forms of attack that should should get in the network. Container Asian technology is really popular if you have a lot of third party or, or consultants in your organization and, and really widely used. Uh, and it's a strong, it's a really strong safeguard. Now, it takes a little bit of time to get used to how to work in a container because essentially it, it provides you, like if you want to spin up your Gmail, just an example, inside the container, it essentially looks like Gmail as you expect it, but it's, it's, there's a little bit of nuance change here and there around the edges. If I had to go spend an hour with a, a, a clinician or a physician about, hey, do we want a game plan? Like how you, let's, 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 let's go back to old school and pretend how you write a prescription on a piece of paper and we could collate that and file that, and organize that, or make sense. Or do I want to teach you how to go use isolation technology so we can maybe mitigate against that event? I don't know. I might choose, let's go use isolation technology because at first glance, I might appear you're going to lose a second or two in your workflow. But you actually, when you see the benefit of that, you might think, you know what? It's better than right now prescription on paper. So you're saying you see this being successful in environments where there are a lot of um, non-employees working in that environment, like consultants and what coming in. Do you see it as for an environment where you have individual employees using well, it? You see it as well, a big absolutely. solution? Absolutely. Yeah. So we see um, isolation technology being deployed in a couple of areas. One is what we call the happy clickers. So those for whatever, happy clickers. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, I get <laughs> those it. Those who just have a habit of clicking on things, right? And maybe haven't really embraced the training or absorbed the training in the way they should. So, okay, you, you can see a trend line there. Let's put them under isolation. Two, people who just work in a vulnerable way. I mean, just by the nature of their job, they have to download a lot of third-party forms, files, interact with third-party apps. It's just that they're not doing anything wrong, but the nature of their job. Yeah. Like, let's say like, if you're if you're in HR and your job is to go on board or recruit new, new, applica new applicants, you've got to take on <laughs> resumes and applications and all that. So you're working in a more vulnerable way. So you might put that person under isolation. You might put somebody under isolation who um, is not working in the vulnerable way, but has access to a lot of very valuable uh, information. So maybe somebody in your IT team who's, you know, who is, has all the passwords, you know, and all, mm -hmm. so it's like if, if they were compromised his account, that would be really, really damaging. So, but yes, absolutely. Isolation would be applicable in for an internal or for an employee and for, uh, for a consultant or third party worker too. Do you think this is going to happen with clinicians? We do see it. We absolutely okay. do see, uh, a strong, particularly since ransomware, uh, the big ransomware event the last year or so, we have seen a strong uptick in interest in, in isolation technology. And to what degree do you think CISOs in health systems are looking at this and, and considering rolling it out? Is this widespread or you think this is not quite something they're really engaging with yet? And is it because 
this is going to be, even if it's a minor, it will be some sort of workflow adjustment for the users. And they're afraid. I think all those things. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I think back to maybe your, your observation of a few minutes ago, this is one of those things where I think they see the value in it. I think it has a priority in terms of their investment stack. Um, I don't think there's a money issue on it per se, but it's a prioritization sequence. When do I deploy this tech capability versus other ones that I'm looking at as mm -hmm. well? And so I think that's more of the, you know, to the degree we see a little bit of um, slowness and adoption, it will be more around how do I just get all my resources in place to get all these things rolled out in time? That's all. But you would encourage them to take a look at this. I would absolutely encourage them to take a look at this. Um, right. Because it's one of those capabilities that I understand why your you, healthcare has a large number of, of third-party workers for all sorts of understandable reasons. They have a legitimate reason to have access to those, those tools uh, that are not supplied directly by that, that health institution that they're, working for on that day. So this solves for that problem. This is like a big use case that I think everyone can identify with. And I think it does solve for, and it's capability that works. Um, it's, this is unlike other industries that are waiting for like, Hey, what's the next feature roadmap feature function coming on the roadmap? This, mm -hmm. this is, this has been around for a while now. So you can definitely deploy this with confidence. Okay. I've got a few more questions here. I'm going to, I'm going to let you pick. Because uh, we, you know, we could spend all day on the call, but I want to see what direction you want to go in. Uh, a few things that I was going to talk to you about here were cyber insurance issues around that, um, the CISO role, and you know whether or not or how reporting may or may not matter uh, in terms of whether they're reporting to the CIO or to the CEO, that kind of a thing. And then uh, with the workforce shortage and a lot of people. Uh, dealing with that staff augmentation and things like that. So, tell me, what do you what do you feel like addressing? Gosh, they're all good areas to talk about. Let, let's just go from the top of cyber insurance. Okay. So, one of the you know we talk about how do we make um, Proofpoint as relevant as possible to healthcare, and so um, I established a healthcare customer advisory board at Proofpoint, and I only say that because it's the only industry we have a dedicated advisory board to. We only have two advisory boards on the company. Mm -hmm. One goes across industry, one's for healthcare. This has been a very, very large topic in our community, uh, which is mostly CISOs. There's a couple of CIOs on there as well. Um, and so we talk about this at our meetings a lot, and it's very dramatic about how the rapidly changing cyber insurance world is impacting, um, I think, institutions' thought processes around, around cyber insurance to the point where the number of questions that are being asked, like when you have to go renew your insurance, like explain your environment or the caveats they need to have in place mm -hmm. have grown exponentially. So mm -hmm. four, five, six times the level of information they're want, they want to take on board to look at to essentially to the degree of what is your pre-existing conditions, you know? Mm -hmm, um, right. Or what sort of capabilities must you first invest in before, you know, we believe that's an insurable event. And when it gets around just ransomware, it's even more pronounced. So I, we have heard several organizations talking very seriously about this whole notion of just becoming 
self-insurance. I mean, like we know the importance of insurance or they know, they talk about the importance of insurance uh, uh, at a, you know, some sort of catastrophe, you know, catastrophic event, which is kind of really what insurance is meant to be about anyway. Um, so they can't do away with it totally, but the level of time and resource and investment means that, you know what, maybe we should, we should just think more and more about making that investment capability and resources and people and teams and processes. Um, uh, and so that's, I, I don't know how many are actually going to walk. That's a big leap, right? So I don't know how many are actually going to do it, but the topic was strong, robust, and pretty, pretty uh, consistent in that. This is something that, that we see being talked about a lot. Um, so I think that's interesting. Um, they do all kind of cite the one of the real byproducts or silver lining for the cyber insurance changes to those institutions who are have or those CISOs who are having trouble explaining the challenges around cyber to their board. When you look at what the cyber insurers are requiring, requesting, or the caveats they must have in place, it, it's a very it's it's very useful. Mm-hmm. be able to captivate their attention to say, hey, see, it's this is a third party now essentially saying what, I'm, what I've been telling you for a long time. So I, I see a really, really big change here. I, cyber insurance as is today just can't, it's this, something's going to have to change in the industry, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's basically like anything else you buy. It's are you getting value for money? And at some point, if the, the premiums are so high, and the, the the conditions they're covering are so narrow that you say, hey, there's all this money. If we put it into security, it's a better place than putting it into this where, you know, it's just a question of where you're putting your resources. Right. It's all about, right, it's it's the chief risk officer. The CISO is the chief risk officer. Right. You, just, you identify the risk. You are described the risk to the business leaders and you allow the business leaders to decide if they are willing to accept that level of risk for the dollars you're investing to, to get it to that point, they may either choose to invest more dollars to reduce the risk or not. Right. And, and then you have within under that, you have, if you want to invest dollars to reduce risk, where are you putting them? Are you putting them to cyber insurance, to tools, to training, education, right? So all these things, is this kind of how you see it in terms of. I see it. I mean, this, this kind of gets us onto one of your other questions is, is, the, the growing importance of the of the CISO role, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, they are becoming the chief risk officer. I don't see that job title yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see that job title going forward. And I wouldn't be surprised as a, as a result if you see the CISO at some stage move out of IT to under the CEO or maybe under the CFO or the COO, because being able to go understand, measure the risk associated to a cyber event, articulating that risk back to the health institution, really to, to those, to the highest level, to those, those, those decision makers and stakeholders who can then therefore go affect strategy. I think that seems to be a trend line of how the CISO role is adapting and morphing and becoming far, far more strategic in a way that we just couldn't see a couple of years ago. Um, and I think more and more, it's, it is really, really, really being equated to a risk conversation. Acknowledgement that we can't solve for all of it, 
but we can make certainly do a lot better to mitigate our risk. And so how do we assess that risk? How do we understand the value is attached to you know, certain percentage changes up or down in, in risk? And then what's our tolerance level for that? And then and if we don't have the right tolerance level, how do we put the mechanisms right. or the strategy in place to, to mitigate we can, the best we can against that? Right. If, if, if the CISO is evaluating 80% of the risk to the organization as a whole, maybe not a big deal for them to take on the other 20%, move out of IT and become the chief, chief risk officer. I, this does not sound wildly out, out, of, out of step at all. I can see that happening. And that's sometimes we've seen CIOs become CEOs of health systems. We've seen that on occasion because, yeah. again, you're – Technology is such a big part of the entity that okay, let's just take on a little more, and now I've got it all. So yeah, particularly when the CIOs, it's when you have an entity who really embraces technology and, mm -hmm. and used it as a competitive edge. Mm -hmm. um, the importance of that role uh, evolves, and I could see that happening with the CISO as well. Maybe not that they become the CEO, but the their elevation within right. the, the hierarchy and the importance they get to the the board or the C the C suite, I think is becoming higher and higher. Let's um before I let you go, let's talk a little bit about the workforce shortage. Uh, it's hit everywhere, clinical, yeah. every department of a health system. Um, we have to assume it's hit security as well. So you've got two things going. You've got uh, people need these specific talents in security. They may be hard to find, but you've also got with everybody going remote, you've got a wider geographical area, perhaps the whole country, perhaps excluding a few states that may be difficult with their HR laws. Yeah. Um, but essentially you have, so you have those going in opposite directions, one making it more difficult, one making it easier. Um, but what are your thoughts around the workforce shortage as it relates to security? I mean, we do not have a conversation uh, at, at, a, at a customer in healthcare or not healthcare where it's not a regular ask is, can you go provide me some sort of stack, staff augmentation? So mm -hmm. it's very clear that everybody is suffering from this challenge. Uh, and, you know, and I think this challenge is, gets resolved in multiple different ways. You know, there is, you know, there are going to be staff augmentation solutions in place, like what Proofpoint's putting in place in terms of that ability to go provide a managed services capability, not only for our capability, not only for our solutions, sorry, but solutions that are beyond uh, beyond Proofpoint. So we, you know, we're reckoning, we're seeing this, and we're we're trying to put that in place. But also, I think that the the the, the further trends will see a a broader, I think, consolidation of of technologies and of vendors. So you have fewer things to manage and to make it a little bit easier to manage. Um, I think you'll see. Um, a situation where um, not only do they consolidate, uh, but they want to, they will embrace this sort of um, outsource model and really will try to find solutions to have as much automation in place as possible. So the more you can automate some of this discovery, some of this sort of analysis, um, you know, we talk about this in, in some of our previous sort of calls, Anthony, where where Proofpoint has this ability to go tell you which job function and what what mm -hmm. departments are much more vulnerable because of a whole number of attributes. Well, the more we can try to automate, you know, through machine through machine learning and try to make that as a a deliverable to somebody that can make the assessment. So I think those sort of capabilities 
in addition to staff augmentation and in addition to vendor consolidation. I think those are three sort of strategies you're going to see uh, really start to accelerate in terms of how do people, at least in the short term, deal with um, these sort of staff shortages. Yeah, and vendor consolidation, um, it sounds good on paper. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes when you're working with a vendor and they get acquired or they acquire someone as a as a user or a customer, sometimes you're like, oh, geez, here we go. What's going to happen now? <laughs> no, I, I hear you. I hear you. You know, and there are, um, I mean, there's lots of pros and cons to a mixed vendor strategy. Um, and hopefully you have the mix you have in place is because the people at the time who made that decision believed that that particular vendor was the best of breed for whatever their use case or whatever their solution was. Uh, and I understand that, and that should still be a very important sort of decision, decision factor. But if if complex becomes the enemy of efficiency, there's there's some trade offs here, and so maybe you know maybe that's something that you have to always kind of look at. So there are pros and cons for sure. All right. Well, I'm just going to give you a chance for a final thought. I mean, to me, one of the you know the biggest takeaways today is, well, one is the containers, uh, the isolation technology. To take a look at that, that's very interesting. Um, and the other one is the blocking and tackling, the documents we talked about, the resources that are out there, which, by the way, Eric Decker had mentioned, you get relief if you have some sort of incident and you can prove that you've adhered to these established best practices, you will be uh, looked at much more favorably by regulators. Um, so that's another thing. But it, would that be your final thought? Just get that blocking and tackling done? I think that would be one would be, you know, thematically around the blocking and tackling. Uh, I would also just, um, you know, we're about to come into kind of the big sort of um, season for hymns and mm-hmm. other sort of large events where, where we talk about all these sort of topics. I would say from a cyber standpoint, stay focused on where the attacks are occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, today, people are being attacked. They're largely being attacked on email, right? That's, that is the, the, path that is still most favored i mean obtaining credentials is the nirvana state for a bad actor you know as eric um, decker or others might say i don't want to put their words in their mouth but if you're tackling a ransomware event the likelihood is there was a breach into your network a number of weeks previously they just been they've been using that time to do reconnaissance and trying to figure out what was really going on and i only say that because Sure, network vulnerability, networks can be vulnerable and medical devices can be vulnerable. And we should we have to think about the totality of the security environment. But the data is very, very clear. Where today's attacks are occurring is what I was talking about around, around you know, using social engineering to go attack people. That's that's the most favored tactic. It's not about zero day, it's not about looking for network patch vulnerability, those happen, but but so focus where you're being attacked particularly in the situation now where you have to go make these trade-offs. Hey, we could have this conversation six months ago and the landscape could have completely changed and that's fine. Then we pivot our thinking then. Mm-hmm. But for a long time now, it's been around credentials being the Nirvana state. And so I would, you know, if I had to place all of my resources or the majority of my resources, I would do my best to make sure that I'm ultra secure or secure as possible in that area. Right. And that has to do with, as you said, knowing who's being attacked, giving them extra protection and providing education. So you have a good security culture and the tools needed to weed out and siphon off as much of the bad stuff as you can. 
So you're using the tools to help them. The rest, we have to rely on education so they know what's up and protect those high-risk people. Right. right. And then, I, you know, container, back to the containerizations of that theme, you don't need containerizations across your whole, your right. whole workforce. But right. there's probably, I don't know, 10% that need it, whatever, right. making number up, you know, because of the way they work and because they're most they're more attacked. All right, Ryan, wonderful stuff. I appreciate your time today, and it's always good to talk to you. Thank you, Anthony. I really appreciate it. See you soon. Thank you.